is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a life, what a day. Saturday, September 5, 2020, Labor Day weekend. Thanks to my sponsors for making this a labor of love. I love being able to express myself during these consequential times. I worry that freedom may go away for not just little old me, but when a magazine like The Atlantic is threatened by a president seeking re-election, I am worried about Donald Trump being reelected. You know that if you listen to this podcast, but it's not just me. There are lots of members of the GOP, and I'm very pleased to welcome a guy who works at the oldest, perhaps the most prestigious law firm in Denver. It's either Sherman and Howard or Springer and Steinberg, where I work. We're at 16th and Broadway. They're on 17th Street. They've been going for maybe 100 years more but not that much. His name is Lyle Wallace. He's a partner there. I guess they call him members. But he's got a lot of big corporate clients and partners who may be Trump supporters. But Lyle, a lifelong Republican, he authored an op-ed in the Denver Post explaining why he could not support Donald Trump. Not only that, he can't support Republicans who support Donald Trump. I admire that. That's the way I feel. Lyle is not just a lifelong Republican. He's a bow tie wearing kind of Republican. Maybe it's like George Will, but he's conservative. That's my point. Donald Trump is not the right guy for us. We have to do as a country what his first two wives did divorce his ass. The theme this week is breaking up. Neil Sadaka is saying that it's hard to do, and sometimes it is. He's saying, I wish we were making up instead of breaking up, but not here. I call Donald Trump the greatest maker-upper ever, but he's gone way too far, especially this week when he urged people to vote twice, and he supported a 17-year-old AR-15-carrying vigilante in Kenosha, Wisconsin who shot two people dead, grotesquely injured another with that military weapon. We discussed that case with William Sultan, a Wisconsin lawyer. If that name sounds familiar, he was part of my most popular podcast ever. He came on to talk about a Denver case, Leslie Branch Wise, Michael Hancock. You remember his mother, Ann Sultan, the Sultans, William is a Wisconsinite. I've worked on cases with him. He's a hell of a lawyer, and he's African-American. And he's been in Kenosha. We get a live report on the ground in a second segment of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. But then we go recreating with my golf course buddy, Tommy Woodard, record holder at City Park, shot his 61, one of the best golfers in Colorado history, in the Colorado Golf Hall of Fame, CU Athletic Hall of Fame, Proud to know him, talk about the old city park, new city park. But he too is an African-American. 
And we talk about civil rights with our buddy Tom Woodard. And then there's my troubadour who has the perfect song this week called Hole in the Head. My mom used to say, and Dave Gunder's mom used to say, we need that like a hole in the head. And it's the perfect breakup attitude. Don't go near this. If you are entangled, get out of it right now. We need that association like a hole in the head. That's perfect for the relationship between America and Donald Trump. What a song. You have to hear it. And truly, the choice is getting more clear and easier. It's time for people to come over and understand what is going on. Corey Gardner, bye-bye. At one point in my life, maybe I would have considered you sort of a friend. We did a lot of radio together. You were nice as hell to my family and me on multiple occasions. But come on, this support of Donald Trump all the way to adopting his hoax bullshit, and you said it in Steamboat to a bunch of Republicans, you suggested that maybe COVID was a joke, a hoax, a political plot against Donald Trump. What kind of conspiracy theorist are you? Has Lauren Boebert gotten to you? QAnon? This is a calculated laugh line. COVID is not a laughing matter, but he's catering to the wacky crowd and Donald Trump followers and Donald Trump who want people to believe COVID is not a real problem. It's a creation of the globalists, the elite, the damn Democrat socialists who control everything all over the world. Don't you know? And then for Cory Gardner to dress this up in the language of his eight-year-old, it's almost child abuse. My eight-year-old son said to me, came to me and said, Dad, I know when the pandemic ends. And I said, you too? And he says, yes, the day after the election. <laughs> now, he picked that up somewhere, or he heard that somewhere, or maybe mom and dad were talking too much around him. This is a serious crisis, a serious pandemic that created a serious economic crisis. If that's what mom and dad, Gardner, are saying around their kid, that's sad. That's Trumpism. That's anti-science. What do you think? The schools really want to not be in session? That this is some international plot? Come on, Cory Gardner. I thought you were better than that. I hope you will be in private practice. Because I'll tell you who doesn't think it's bullshit. It's the guy who tells us he just saved two million lives. The ultimate bullshitter, Donald Trump. Now, you cannot have it both ways. If COVID is a killer coming to kill many millions of us, and if Donald Trump claims credit for stopping 2 million deaths, well, then how does that square with this being a hoax just timed for an election? Here is our great American hero, the self-proclaimed all-time greatest, Donald J. Trump. And listen to how he deals with numbers. It's the way we talked about it with Rick Riley. He cannot be trusted with numbers. And even in the space of about 30 seconds, he elevates the number again and again to make himself look better. But it only makes him look more non-credible, incredible, not believable. If I didn't close up our country... If I didn't stop China, highly infected, from coming in, if I didn't stop Europe from coming in far sooner than anybody else, including Dr. Fauci and others, wanted to, 
And Dr. Fauci was very nice. He said, President Trump made a great decision. Uh, we would have far more than that. But maybe even more importantly, if I didn't close up, we would have, instead of the number that you mentioned or whatever it may be, we're about 180. Uh, we would have perhaps one and a half or two million deaths right now. Uh, if I went a different direction, which some people wanted me to do, and I decided not to do it, we'd have two million deaths. If he kept talking, it was going to be save four million lives. But you cannot have it both ways, Republicans. Or whatever comes out of the man's mouth, you say, that's right. Amen, brother. Donald Trump is toxic in Colorado. Let's find out if he is toxic in Wisconsin. William Sultan in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Now, after William. We're coming home to Colorado. Tommy Woodard talking about golf and some politics. He's got to go there. We all do. What's it like being a black golf pro out in Jefferson County? Hear about it. And then stay tuned for Lyle Wallace, a Republican gone to the Dem side for this election and this election only because of Donald J. Trump. I will keep making the case in my segment called Impactful Sound. Thanks for being with us. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is a distinct honor to welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, William Sultan, a lawyer who I know and respect. We've worked together in the past. He was on my show and we set all-time podcast records back in the day. What was that, a couple of years ago? William, welcome back to the lounge. Thanks for having me. Tell everybody where you are right now. Well, I'm a lawyer practicing with the law firm of Jingris Thompson and Walks in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we've been doing a lot of monitoring recently of the events in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which have made international headlines for the police abuse there, both with respect to the shooting of Jacob Blake, but also with respect to the treatment of demonstrators. Before we go there, and Wisconsin is on everybody's mind. Tell everybody about your connections to Colorado. Well, Craig, as you know, I grew up in Colorado, attended Cherry Creek High School and campus middle school and even elementary school before that. My mom was a longtime lawyer in Denver, represented the local NAACP there for many, many years. My father at the time worked for the Colorado Commission on Higher Education. And your mother is legendary lawyer Ann Sultan, and she's wonderful. I can't wait to get her back in the lounge. But just talk about some of the breakthroughs of your mother. Brag on your mama, because I think it's germane to our conversation about Donald Trump, the military, women, race issues. Just brag on your mama a little bit. Sure, sure. As you as you mentioned, my mother being one of the very few practicing African-American female attorneys in the country, really, graduating law school in 1985, went on to be a very well-known civil rights attorney. She won and was awarded the William Robert Ming Award, which is the highest award that a civil rights attorney can receive. One of the earliest cases that I can remember as a kid was a guy named Gil Webb. And as you may recall, Gil Webb was terribly injured when a Denver police officer ran through a red light and hit a car that he had stolen. Unfortunately, the officer ended up passing away. 
Other officers arrived on scene, extracted Mr. Webb from the car, and proceeded to break his neck. My mom ended up bringing a civil rights lawsuit against the city and county of Denver and various police officers for that police brutality. That's one of the earliest cases that I can remember. Wow. I remember that case because I was in the DA's office. I think I knew the officer who was killed, but street justice just does not work. And that brings us to Wisconsin. And tell us about Kenosha. I've never been to Wisconsin in my life. What kind of a city is Kenosha? If we went there last year, what would we have found? Kenosha is a beautiful city on Lake Michigan, which is the largest flesh body of water in our country. About 100,000 people. It's a diverse city. I mean, it's a city known, frankly, for being calm. But it's not a major inflection point or flashpoint for politics, although it is today. But it's a, it's a beautiful city, and I would encourage folks to visit. What about its police department? You are the head of the ACLU now in Wisconsin. Did Kenosha police have a reputation, good, bad, otherwise? Unfortunately, the state of Wisconsin as a whole has some of the worst disparities when it comes to race and also some of the worst disparities when it, when it comes to police citizens' encounters. And that is certainly true in Kenosha. The Kenosha County Sheriff, Sheriff Beth, did not have a good relationship with the community since he was installed in 2002. Police Chief Miskinis, likewise, did not have a very good relationship with the community when he was installed a few years ago. Tell us about Wisconsin and the political aspect of everything. You guys are a swing state. I know Colorado and not a whole lot more than that. We've become progressively more blue. What about Wisconsin? What are the politics of Wisconsin in general and Kenosha in particular? So Wisconsin is a a proud purple state where you have many different voices and opinions, largely in Madison and Milwaukee and Green Bay. You have Democratic strongholds in places like Racine and Kenosha and Waukesha County, you have a Republican stronghold. But I do want to be clear, Craig, I don't view police citizen interactions as Democratic or Republican. These are human interactions. I think all people in Wisconsin and throughout the country care deeply about public safety. We just have a significant cultural problem when it comes to policing in our country. I agree. Let's get back to what happened. What was it? Sunday before last, Jacob Blake. Where were you when you saw the video? And what did that mean for you as a lawyer in Wisconsin and the head of the local ACLU? Well, I was, like many folks, sitting at home with my family when I saw that video. The video, of course, went viral. And as a lawyer practicing civil and constitutional rights, as well as being involved in many social justice organizations, including the American Civil Liberties Union, I was deluged with calls and emails and text messages and notifications from social media platforms about what was going on in Kenosha. And then as the night fell upon us, we started to get more and more reports about how demonstrators were being treated by the county sheriff and police department as well as, of course, some bad actors who had made some decisions to cause some property damage. 
So did you make your way to Kenosha? Isn't your regular home near Milwaukee or in Milwaukee? Yes, but my grandfather's from Kenosha, so I know the area very well. My mother's from Racine, Wisconsin, which is a few miles north of Kenosha. So I know the, the area very, very well. I was in Kenosha on Monday afternoon and Monday night, and I can tell you that it was quite a scene where you had peaceful demonstrators by the hundreds, even at night, and they were greeted with Wisconsin National Guard, Kenosha County Sheriffs, and City of Kenosha police officers who appeared to me to be looking for a confrontation. Wow. That brings us to that militia that arrived, Kyle Rittenhouse. How did that happen? What did that look like? Well, the facts about how that occurred and why it occurred are still unfolding, but this is what we know today. Mr. Rittenhouse is from out of state, from a city in Illinois called Antioch. He came to Kenosha for the purpose of causing a confrontation with peaceful demonstrators. Mr. Rittenhouse was illegally possessing an AR-15 rifle, walking down the street past curfew, being cheered on by law enforcement officers. It's my understanding that those officers were Kenosha County Sheriff's deputies. Mr. Rittenhouse proceeds to shoot and kill a man and then shoots and kills a second person and wounds a third and then is permitted by law enforcement to leave the area without any investigation, any arrest, or even any questioning at all. It was shocking. We've seen the video, and we've heard the President of the United States weigh in on behalf of the 17-year-old. First of all, Antioch, Illinois, is it close enough to Kenosha where you would say, well, it's kind of his community, or is it not like that? It's not like that at all. It is not far in terms of miles, but it is completely culturally different. It is across state lines. You do have to pay a toll to get there. It it is not his community. The first victim, a guy named Rosenbaum, seems to be going after the 17-year-old, which is understandable as he brings an AR-15 to the event. And then did he throw something at Kyle Rittenhouse before he got shot. What's your take on that? Well, again, the the specific facts are being unfolded, but the information that I've heard is that Mr. Rittenhouse had shot a person and that they were trying to take the gun away from Mr. Rittenhouse. And in that process, he shot two other folks killing another person. Right. I mean, it's it's like a law school test. But I think Rosenbaum got shot first. They said he threw like a plastic bag or something, causing Rittenhouse to fire the weapon. Others reacted. One wanted to apprehend the shooter, even if the police did not. And then they got shot. Of course, one of the victims had a skateboard. And according to the president of the United States, Rittenhouse was about to be killed, which is the essence of self-defense. What do you think about Donald Trump weighing in on behalf of Rittenhouse? Well, I think it's appalling, but it does show a dichotomy throughout the country, right? After George Floyd was killed, the country erupted in protests. 
Unfortunately, since then, we have had at least 20 other police-related shootings, most of those shootings resulting in death, all right, throughout the country. And Donald Trump and his Republican allies have consistently come down on the side of people who are supporting the maiming and killing of protesters and demonstrators and people who support the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's all this is, is a continuation of supporting that misconduct. I was thinking about somebody who's the head of the ACLU like you and the contrary instincts that may go on. As I understand it, that militia was formed online, including a Facebook posting. Facebook has taken that down. They don't want that kind of speech on their platform. And now we have a 17-year-old charged with double murder. And normally the ACLU is sympathetic to minors charged as an adult. What is the official position of the Wisconsin ACLU about all of this, since I'm talking to the head of it, William Sultan? You know, the ACLU, you know, we're deeply concerned with First Amendment issues. And one of the primary problems with what you see happening with Mr. Rittenhouse in particular is that you have law enforcement unevenly enforcing the law, where they're arresting demonstrators who are peacefully in a park, sitting in a circle, sharing stories about police brutality. And here you have a white person unlawfully carrying an AR-15 past curfew being cheered on by law enforcement. That type, that dichotomy is simply appalling. Mr. Rittenhouse is entitled to all of the legal trappings of due process, and we certainly hope that he gets that. But the president weighing in on this, the local GOP chair in Kenosha weighing in on this is completely appalling and should not stand. When he came to Kenosha, Donald Trump was asked about systematic racism. He said, we shouldn't even be talking about that. We should talk about the looting and the rioting that happened afterwards. I ask you about systematic racism. Does it exist? And does it exist more in Wisconsin than elsewhere? Or is this a United States problem? Well, yes, systemic racism does exist in Wisconsin and throughout the United States. But let me just address something before I get into that, which is, there has not been widespread looting and rioting in Kenosha. That is a, a misrepresentation of what's occurring on the ground. As a matter of fact, the Kenosha County Sheriff's Department lifted its curfew earlier this week, specifically because there had not been rioting and looting. Right, but there were a couple of really hot nights where some car lots got burned up and buildings destroyed. On August 23rd, there was a car lot that was set on fire. And certainly, I don't support, ACLU doesn't support property damage. But what occurred on August 23rd did not occur on other days throughout the week. And I think that's very important. And, you, and there seems to be an effort to connect the property damage to the peaceful demonstrations. That's not fair. It's not correct. It's completely inaccurate. But getting back to this question about systemic racism, yes, it exists in our society, and we know that. Is it more prevalent in Wisconsin than in other states? Yes, I believe that it is. In the city of Kenosha, just as an example, 
an African-American man is nearly seven times more likely to be arrested and prosecuted for simple marijuana possession than a white person. And that's more that's nearly three times the national average. That is fascinating, especially for people who live in Colorado, where weed is treated quite different. But I'll answer my own question. And I think George Floyd demonstrated that you not only had that one cop kneeling nonchalantly on his neck as the man died and begged for breath, but three other officers who did nothing. And in the case of Blake in Wisconsin, man, once the cops fired seven times, he's the guy who should have been tackled and thrown on the ground. I mean, it's Wild to see how police go to the defense of others. And you bring up Rittenhouse, who fires those loud shots walking down the street, and the cops do nothing. Now, here in Denver, we have some militias that came out last week. And one of the most disturbing things I have seen, William, and there's a lot to be disturbed about right now, is the way that Donald Trump has tried to co-opt the boys and women in blue. And I think police go down a dangerous road following Donald Trump, and he plays up on that, and he tries to cater to them. But he's, in the long run, no friend of the police. Am I right? You are exactly right. The president, despite all his rhetoric, has not delivered for law enforcement officers throughout the country. And there are many law enforcement officers and law enforcement agencies that oppose the president. One example I would give is President Obama's 21st century policing accountability plan is still the gold standard and still has the most support from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. So I don't think there's broad-based support in the policing community for, for Donald Trump either. I think that's a misconception that's been created by the president and his machine. I think they will start to see through the president this credible report out of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, about Donald Trump ridiculing the military as losers and suckers. That is going to perhaps leave a mark. What do you think? Yes, and I think it's also not surprising. I mean, we're talking about a president who publicly pointed out that he was a draft dodger and indicated that he was smart for doing so. President historically has not been a supporter of the military, although he did pass you know, a major budget for the military. But outside of that, he hasn't done anything for service men and women. And I would point particularly to the Department of Veterans Affairs and the mismanagement of that agency uh, since his presidency. Let's go to a different executive, the DA in charge in Kenosha. Do you have confidence in the DA? Tell us about the district attorney who right away filed charges against Kyle Rittenhouse. Yes, I have lost confidence in the Kenosha County District Attorney, and let me tell you why. The Kenosha County District Attorney still has not publicly stated that Jacob Blake will not be charged with any crime for being shot seven times in the back by Rushkin Shesky. And that's critical. Because that's the reason Jacob Blake was handcuffed to his hospital bed, because he was still under criminal investigation, because Officer Shesky said that Mr. Blake resisted him. 
The Kenosha County District Attorney could put this issue to rest right now by publicly announcing that Jacob Blake will not be charged with any crime in connection with his own shooting. But holy cow, William, isn't there an alleged sex assault victim as well? Wasn't he wanted? I mean, how can you just drop charges? And even by neutral accounts, there does appear that there was resistance. I'm not saying he needs to go to prison or be incarcerated or even handcuffed for that, but how can you drop those charges? Sure. And I think that's one of the the benefits to being in your lawyer's lounge, because we can talk about these legal issues in an intelligent way. But as you know, Craig, there's a difference between the charges that are pending against Mr. Blake in an unrelated case and the arrest of Jacob Blake following his shooting on the claim that he was resisting or obstructing Officer Chesky. Jacob Blake is entitled to all of the legal trappings of due process, just like Mr. Rittenhouse is. And the bail issue, you know, can be dealt with through the court system. So I'm I'm not advocating dropping charges because Mr. Blake was shot in the back, but I am certainly advocating that the Kenosha County District Attorney's publicly is not going to be charged for resisting or obstructing an officer who shot him seven times in the back. Moreover, the video footage clearly shows that he was not resisting or obstructing any of those officers. Right, but what if he was going for a knife inside the car? What were the cops supposed to do? I, I think they should have tackled him before he ever got to that position. Well, what I can say is the Wisconsin Attorney General's office is investigating this incident. They put out half a dozen press releases on this subject. Not in a single one do they state that Jacob Blake possessed a knife or was going for a knife. Right, but I heard the neutral third party who took the video seems to be on the side of Jacob Blake, thought it was excessive force, but he did hear the officers numerous times yell, drop the knife. What was that about? Why would he say that if it didn't happen? And why would the cops say that if he didn't have a knife or talk about a knife? Well, police officers often, frankly, in excessive force cases, will make statements like stop resisting even if the victim is not resisting. You've certainly seen cases, I've seen cases, I've litigated cases where police officers who have said drop the gun and there is no gun, and I don't view this any differently. What I would cite to is the Attorney General's report, which has some 800 interviews and video footage and forensic pieces of evidence, and in none of that do they indicate that Jacob Blake has a knife or is going for a knife. Well, we all take the facts as we find them. Blake was adopted, so to speak, by the Milwaukee Bucks, your hometown team. The Bucks favored to win the championship, but now they're behind Miami 2-0. They might be 3-0 down by the time this airs. Tell us about the NBA, the Milwaukee Bucks, and whether you think they made a good decision to lead a temporary suspension of the NBA over this Wisconsin incident. Yes, I think it's it's great to see athletes using their platform to further the interests of social justice. I think that's critical work. I, I think what's important here is that we have a full investigation of what occurred for Jacob Blake. I think that's the message that the Milwaukee Bucks are sending. I think that we frankly haven't seen that occur yet. I would say that Giannis Antetokounmpo 
George Hill and others and their public statements have been wonderful to hear. It might be distracting them, though, although Miami is pretty darn tough. How is this affecting Wisconsin politically? I don't know if you heard, but we have a big election coming up. Trump was there. Biden was there. What do you predict for the state of Wisconsin? Yeah, I I predict that Joe Biden will carry the state. I think less clear are some of the down-ballot elections. But Wisconsin just elected a Democratic governor and a Democratic lieutenant governor. He recently elected the Democrats' choice for the Supreme Court of our state. The Democrats have the wind at their back. What about voting issues? Here in Colorado, we have universal mail balloting. Are there going to be issues in Wisconsin? Well, as you know, the United States Postal Service is a mess currently and is indicating in our state and in others that there may be issues counting ballots that are sent in at or around the election date. ACLU and other organizations are going to ensure that that, those problems do not happen, but it's important that we encourage every Wisconsin voter to vote early and to vote absentee. How about voting twice? The president suggested that this week. You know, in a normal presidency, this would be shocking. But this guy says things. And just give us your reaction to the president telling people to vote twice. I think any public official who tells someone to commit an offense, particularly a felony-level offense, particularly after the Republicans have spent the better part of the last decade railing against voter fraud that doesn't exist, I think it's wrong. Uh, What I can tell you is the voting rights material that has been put out by ACLU and other organizations in our state all make it very clear as to what the steps are for early voting and absentee voting. And I'll also point out that at least in our state in Wisconsin, I don't think that that's going to be possible, that folks are going to be able to vote twice. But I would certainly discourage anyone from breaking any law, and particularly that one. I'll bet there will be a significant percentage increase in people trying to carry out the president's plan, which will be evidence of a crime that he encouraged. I think it's outrageous. I think Donald Trump in general is outrageous. I'm very worried about his second term and further proving that he doesn't care about you, me, the military or the police by encouraging people to go to the polls to stress test the system. COVID is going on. It puts people at risk. He already did this in Wisconsin. How much less empathy can he have for the American people? It is shocking. It is appalling. And it's very, very troubling. But I will say that at least in Wisconsin, I do believe that folks who choose to vote in person can do so safely. There is a risk. There's no question there, which is why I encourage everyone to vote early or to vote absentee, but I think it's also important that we do not discourage folks who choose to vote in person. It can be done safely, and Wisconsin has taken steps to ensure that it is going to be done safely. I love to hear this confidence from Wisconsin. On a 1 to 10 scale, with 10 being a positive, how confident are you that Joe Biden will carry Wisconsin? I've I I will give it an eight. Well, that's pretty strong. And lawyers are 
not prone to give guarantees and you're not giving that. One of our themes this week, I have a troubadour and his song is Hole in the Head. And it was inspired by his mother saying, I need that or you need that like a hole in the head. My mother said the same thing. What about your mom? Have you ever heard that expression? I need that like a hole in the head. I have not heard that particular expression. My mom was always fond of saying that some things have too much hair on them. What does that mean? <laughs> if you if you see something that has too much hair on it, you know you should stay away. Well, that's a good expression. Will you please say hi to your mama and tell her I'm going to hopefully talk to her soon. William, really appreciate your time and perspective from the great state of Wisconsin. Well, thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye, William Sultan. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Back with the Troubadour. How's it going, man? Good morning, Craig. It's good. You have written the ultimate breakup song, which I think is apropos for our guest today. They're making a clean break from Donald Trump. They need him like a hole in the head. That's what I feel about his second Trump term. So I want to break up with Donald Trump. I want this country to. Is that what you had in mind when you wrote it? No, no. It was more of a breakup song between a man and a woman who didn't understand him. And was it because of bad hair? No, it was other things. Worse than bad hair, if you can imagine. I can imagine because I've heard this song. What inspired your ire? Well, the, the song was inspired by actually by the statement, I need that like a hole in the head, which you and I have both, when I mentioned it to you, you said your mother said that had the same expression. She my, did. My mother would use that expression. Oh, I need that like a hole in the head. Right. Well, when I, I came ac across the expression, I thought that that could be a song and a breakup song followed from that. One of my all time favorite movies, The Heartbreak Kid, the one with Charles Grodin, when he falls for Sybil Shepherd and her 
father-in-law's Eddie Albert. See that if you haven't already been. They're driving from their wedding down to Miami Beach, and they stop in Virginia, and they go to a Denny's, and she orders egg salad, and she gets it all over her face, and he doesn't like egg salad. He thinks it's disgusting, and she starts saying, we're going to be like that couple, some couple that's about celebrating their 83rd wedding anniversary, and you have a line in your song that reminds me of that, like... Your love interest is saying we're going to be together for a hundred years. Yeah, and he says he says uh, that's more than enough. I assure you, my dear. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's so, it's a sneering, cynical song. I'm sorry. No, that's beautiful. And then you start ripping on her, whoever she was, that her expression was sour and she didn't like your friends. That's talk to me about that. That's right. And well, maybe we've all had a girlfriend like that, that you bring home and you realize she doesn't fit with your friends. She doesn't like your music. Your bed's too hard. Nothing's good. Nothing works for her. You need her like a hole in the head. Here's this song. Give it a listen. that you love me a hundred long years It's more than enough I assure you my dear you Tell me I need you Well that may be true Just not in the way that you think that I do You said I need you like a bird needs the sky On a wing and a prayer I thought we would fly Yeah, I need you But it's not how you said I need you Like a hole in the head Don't think me unkind For telling the truth for you This our little romance ain't all that I dreamed Sometimes you get crazy Sometimes you're just mean And I need you Like a man needs a drink I'm so drunk already He can't even think And yes I was angry But it's true what I said I need you like a hole in the head I said give me a minute you left for an hour when you returned your expression was sour Cause my friends had come over Yeah, they didn't even call A blind man can see you don't like them at all And I need you like a jewel needs a thief Your heart is a stone kept safe out of reach You don't like my music 
I got too hard a bed I need you like a home Okay, I love that song. The harmonica, who is playing that? It's so beautiful at the start and throughout the song. Yours truly. I love to play the harmonica. Another another instrument imparted by my father, who also plays a wicked, if I can use the Eastern expression, a wicked harmonica. I thought you were going to say mouth organ or something crude like that. I wouldn't use that, that expression. No. Well, I'm glad you wouldn't. I wanted to bring up in that movie, The Heartbreak Kid, he leaves that just married wife for Sybil Shepherd down in Miami, and it's just an interesting story. I want to bring it back to Donald Trump because I just think that Donald Trump for a second term would be problematic. I hope that we can survive it. I'm not going to make you get political unless you want to, Troubadour. All I can say is that problematic is too kind a word. That's right. And it has too many syllables, too. Thanks, Troubadour. <laughs> Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LLC.com. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. I love fresh sound and the ability to analyze it. And I hope you find this valuable in a segment we call Impactful Sound. It is the best of times. It is the worst of times. So much technology at our fingertips, but the loneliness of not interacting with people, the civil unrest because of a president who fans the flames. We need to break up with Donald Trump. And if you haven't already, let us help. This president is a criminal. 
election fraud. You cannot encourage people to vote twice. He did just that. Talk about despicable. And it will be easy to prove in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and even here in Colorado. I guarantee you there will be more people going to polling places, asking to vote again, saying, I'm not sure if my ballot came in, all encouraged by the cheater-in-chief, the bullshitter-in-chief, the one and only Donald J. Trump telling people to vote twice. Don't let them take your vote away. How about don't let this guy take your life away? You've already voted. Now you are going to go to a crowded place, a super spreader? This president could not give a shit about you, you Trump voters. And he proved that. You have to be willing to risk your life for this guy. And a lot of people are. Those people who showed up in North Carolina for that convention where they had spreading, then at the White House, no social distancing, no mask, a president who ridicules the wearing of a mask. This guy has contempt for life as illustrated by him backing Kyle Rittenhouse. We talked about that with William Sultan. I prosecuted Danny Akers back in the early 1990s. Let me tell you about Danny Akers, a freckle-faced kid. He had just gotten a car, his first one. He looked like Opie on the Andy Griffith show, driving around Montbello. Teron Hicks was bored and throwing some landscaping chips. And when a car came by and a landscaping chip flew at it, there was trepidation, but it was just, for the reaction. Nothing serious. But when Danny Akers had that happen, he stopped his car. He backed up. He pulled out his Mac 11 that his mother had bought for him. Why? Because he wanted it for his birthday, even though assault weapons were illegal in Denver, Colorado. Tehran thought it was a squirt gun, one of those super soakers or whatever, but he wasn't going to back down. And he got a bullet in the chest and he died right there. A teenager dead on the streets of Montbello at the hands of a teenager with a semi-automatic weapon, a Mac 11, not unlike the AR-15 that this vigilante took to Kenosha. He got up in Illinois, and as you heard, those two communities are not linked any more than Fort Collins and Cheyenne, I suppose. Different kinds of communities, right? How would you like somebody from Wyoming coming down to police Fort Collins? I wouldn't. Anyway, Kyle Rittenhouse did that, and I wonder where he got the gun. If it was from Mama, I prosecuted Danny Aker's mother after he got convicted of second-degree murder and many decades in prison. I prosecuted Mama for contributing to the delinquency of a minor by helping her son violate that city ordinance we had against assault weapons in Denver, Colorado, a law which has stood the test of time. So I have experience in that regard, and Donald Trump has experience weighing in on criminal cases when he doesn't know jack shit about it, except he knows this kid Rittenhouse was in the front row at a Trump rally, and he was going on the side of the police, so to speak, although the police should be very much against this, Anyway, here's our president of the United States saying, oh, it's under investigation, but uh, I think he was in fear for his life, so it's perfect self-defense, so don't even prosecute this guy. 
And if you do, he should be acquitted. And if he's not, I'm going to try to get him out. Here's our president once again putting his fat thumb on the scales of justice. He's accused of killing two people. Also, supporter of yours saying, "Are you going to condemn the actions of vigilantes like Kyle Rittenhouse?" Um, we're, we're looking at all of it. Uh, that was an interesting situation. You saw the same tape as I saw, and uh, he was trying to get away from them. I guess it looks like, and he fell, and then they very violently attacked him. And it was something that we're looking at right now, and it's under investigation. But uh, I guess he was in very big trouble. He would have been—he probably would have been killed. But it's under—it's under investigation. Do you think private citizens should be taking? I'd like to see law enforcement take care of everything. I think everything should be taken care of, law enforcement. But again, we have to give our cops back, our police back, their dignity. The respect, they're very talented people, they're strong, they're tough, they can do the job, but we've taken it away. We don't want to have, when somebody makes a mistake, he chokes, or in some cases you have bad cops, so we have to take care of that. In other cases, they choke. They're under, they have a quarter of a second, a quarter of a second to make a decision. And sometimes they make the wrong decision. If they make the wrong decision, you know if they make the wrong decision in the other direction, they're probably dead. So they choke sometimes, and that goes on the evening news for weeks. Nice choice of words in the wake of George Floyd. Sometimes these cops are chokers. It's like a game of golf. Maybe you know a little something about golf. You've spent a lot of time doing that, although you always give yourself the three-footer, Mr. President. But you don't know much about policing any more than you know about being a military man. You have contempt in your heart of hearts for these public servants because you are all about money. I read Mary Trump's book. I've sized you up. And you have proved over and over. It's all about yourself, and you measure people in a monetary way. Just listen to this weak defense by Donald Trump after the explosive story in The Atlantic in which Jeff Goldberg reveals, and it's now been verified by Fox News, that Donald Trump has contempt for people who fight and give their lives and limbs for the United States military. Contempt is what he has, calling them losers and suckers. And the evidence is all over the place. I think Donald Trump went to school with a lot of those guys at that New York Military Institute Then he stayed as far away from that as he could because he did not want to be one of those guys. He had contempt for them. If you're smart and if you have talent, you need to make money. That's the only status symbol in the world of Donald Trump. And he illustrates that on the tarmac when he landed, pissed at the story and saying, how could I be against the military Look at all the money I give them. And to think that I would make statements negative to our military and our fallen heroes when nobody's done what I've done with the budgets, with the military budgets, with getting pay raises for our military. It is a disgraceful situation by a magazine that's a terrible magazine. I don't read it, but I just heard about it. They made it up. And probably it's a couple of people that have been failures in the administration that I got rid of, and I couldn't get rid of them fast enough, But or, or it was just made up. It's a terrible magazine, but I've never read it. Genius. Stable genius. 
I have an odd linkage with Brian Stelter, author of the book, The Hoax. I'm reading it right now. In fact, I'm listening to Brian Stelter read it to me on Audible. And I've talked to Brian Stelter before. And the first time is when he tweeted me, direct messaged me. And then I called him Saturday, November 16, 2019, after I got my mic ripped away for excoriating Donald Trump on Denver Trump Radio. Anyway, Stelter and I talked and he booked me for the show the next morning. And he asked me tough, fair questions, and we had a great interaction on reliable sources. He's written a book about Fox News and how, one, Donald Trump stumbled on the term fake news, courtesy of Craig Silverman, if you could believe that. Not me, but my namesake, who is a Canadian journalist who was working for BuzzFeed and had that phrase, fake news, which Trump took during 2016, I had a great lunch in a deli in Montreal with Craig, and I will get him on the show. I didn't realize he started fake news, but the other great word for Trump is hoax, because he thinks it worked for him in the past, and I guess it did. He survived impeachment. Guys like Cory Gardner signed off on it. To me, hoax is really a horrific conspiracy theory word. Not that hoaxes never happen, but for example, COVID to be a hoax, it is too elaborate. It does not make sense. The Ukrainian shakedown was not a hoax. The facts were there. Beyond that, there was Russian collusion. But Trump is a master of marketing. He just keeps repeating the same word, the same lie, and all these Trumpsters go along with it, but not normal people. There is nobody that feels more strongly about our soldiers, our wounded warriors, our soldiers that died in war than I do. It's a hoax, just like the fake dossier was a hoax, just like the Russia, Russia, Russia was a hoax. It was a total hoax, no collusion. Now, that dossier did talk about golden showers, and Michael Cohen is on Rachel Maddow on Tuesday. His book is coming out. We will talk about it over Rosh Hashanah, as they say. It will be coming out, and it's coming out just as the ballots come out, and we are going to hear more about golden showers, at least in Las Vegas. Michael Cohen says he was a witness. That should be a good chapter. Dare I say, juicy? No, I'll leave that for Steve Ducey. Oh, they may not talk about that on Fox News. They are his friends. But do look for Brian Stelter to be on my show. I am going to try to get him on. After all, Stelter and I and CNN, we were part of a right-wing neo-Nazi hoax, a conspiracy theory that involved Corcoran and Whitland saying that I was wearing a blue suit and had conspired with Stelter. Remember Woodland, my neo-Nazi producer? Have you heard about this guy named Corcoran? Yeah, Corcoran is the losing attorney in countless lawsuits. Losing if you count the court result. I guess he's winning if you count the GoFundMe. All those people going to Bandemir, contributing money for a losing cause to sue the governor over his mask mandate when clearly he has the power? How many bogus lawsuits in a row can you file to prove a point that you don't like the guy that your boss at Canyon West calls 
Pontius Polis. And we get the meaning of that. Terence Carroll explained it. He has a divinity degree. You guys don't like Polis because of why? How many times can you call him a gay Jew? He's doing a good job trying to protect this state. While you guys have events at Bandemir with a proven Jew hater like Michelle Malkin, who's the proud mother of the far-right Proud Boys and Groypers and people of that ilk, and she associates with Randy Corcoran and Patrick Neville and Salem, and of course their leader, Donald J. Trump, Of course, Donald Trump doesn't disassociate himself from anybody, even David Duke. Remember how he wouldn't do that? Find people on both sides. Now in bed with QAnon and the Lauren Boberts of the world and that loon down in Georgia who spews bigotry, including anti-Semitism, just like Michelle Malkin and her associates. But what are you guys doing about it? I know what Donald Trump is bathing in their adulation. And you can do whatever you want, but if you start holding these super spreader events at places like Bandamere, people will get pissed. We are pissed. How selfish can you guys be? You don't trust science? Then go to a state that doesn't like science. We like science here. This is an educated place, Colorado. And this ain't no conspiracy thought of by commies Jared Polis wants Colorado open, so do I. And the sooner you guys put on masks and follow the rules, maybe we will get there and our schools can open. We need to cut off this snake at the head, which is Donald Trump. He needs to be removed from office pronto. What a scum of the earth guy to pick on generals like John Kelly. Doesn't that prove the point about his contempt for military men? General Kelly, a brave Marine general whose son sacrificed his life. This is a true story about Donald J. Trump. And if you are out there and if you can truly look at the facts here, the pattern, John McCain, the fact that Fox News has corroborated this, General Mattis, General Kelly, two other generals are the sources. So you have to deal with the fact that you have a president who's contemptuous of people in the military who have been damaged, either given their life or their limbs. And you've got a president who regards them as losers and suckers. Will you put up with that? Really? At TAPS, that program, Tragedy Assistance for Parents, Survivors of Military Families, are you going to take that? I know you are on the political right. People in the military are understandably turning against Donald J. Trump, and I encourage you to do the same. And listen to the cheap way he puts down General Kelly, who he suspects is the source for Goldberg, because Goldberg is a respected journalist, despite what Donald Trump says. And The Atlantic is a thriving magazine, even more so now that they broke this information, because Kelly and Mattis and other generals trust Jeff Goldberg, and so do I. But don't expect the Malkins and the Nevilles and the Corcorans and the Boyles to ever respect a guy named Goldberg. Donald Trump doesn't know that General Kelly squealed and told the truth about him, but he suspects it, 
and he's pissed that Kelly hasn't come forward to deny it. So he says this to the world. It's a disgrace that somebody's allowed to write things like that. Uh, it could have been, you know, a lot of times the sources aren't sources that don't exist. And sometimes the sources are just people that are disgruntled former so-called employees. Well, my, my question is sort of about that. I mean, the notable voice that's been missing from the denials is your former chief of staff, John Kelly, who was obviously intimately involved in this. What, how are we supposed well, to read look, the fact uh, that John here's Kelly the thing. I know John Kelly. He was with me, didn't do a good job, had no temperament, and ultimately he was petered out. He, got, he was exhausted. This man was totally exhausted. He wasn't even able to function in the last number of months. He was not able to function. He was sort of a tough guy. By the time he got eaten up in this world, it's a different world than he was used to, he was unable to function. Talk about your contempt for the military. Why don't you just confess, man? You incriminate yourself every time you talk. He had no temperament. He thought he was a tough guy, but I proved he's a pussy. Who talks like that? Donald Trump, when he's trying to denigrate somebody who knows the truth about him. General Kelly, do your duty. Tell us the truth. If that wasn't enough for you, petered out is pretty bad. Now, how about some more insults, Mr. President? I don't know that it was him. I haven't seen that. I mean, I see anonymous, but it could have been a guy like a John Kelly because he was, because just so you understand, he was a very, uh, you look at some of his news conferences, what happened to him. He got eaten alive. He was unable to handle the pressure of this job. This job was a tough job. Mark Meadows doing a great job. No, how could we suspect that President Trump would ever denigrate the military? They are heroes, and they don't come finer than John Kelly. Not just him, but his family. Surely the president has maximum respect. What the hell is wrong with you, military backers out there? Do you not have ears? Do you not have logic? How can you pretend to back the military and back this guy? How about that afternoon host on Denver Trump Radio who says he's a military guy? He never served in the military, but I'm going to glom onto their glory. Well, how about John Kelly? Isn't he one of the people whose glory you want to emulate? I do. I'll take one John Kelly over 10 Donald Trumps any day of the week and throw me in a General Jim Mad Dog Mattis who told us that this guy is deliberately divisive, Donald Trump, and he operates like the Nazis. Mattis's words, not mine. Divide and conquer. And I'm so sick of all his enablers because we have a bigoted bully in the White House. Up with this, we shall not put not much longer. November 3rd is nigh, and I love the NBA for encouraging people to vote. You are going to listen to Tommy Woodard, and isn't that the message? You've got to vote. A lot of people feel constrained in their jobs to tell the truth. That's why you have to stay tuned for Lyle Wallace. He's risking quite a bit, business, clients, partnerships, because he cannot stand Donald Trump anymore, and he's a lifelong Republican, a military kid. The dude's from El Paso County. That's where he went to high school. You can't get more conservative. But I guess people have different ways of looking at the world. Some people like hockey, some like basketball. I like them both. Sorry, Avs. That was disappointing. 
and the Nuggets. Maybe the Clippers, if Kawhi is called out of the bubble. Kawhi Leonard, a little too tough, but you never know. And what a thrill to watch Tuesday night while people gathered at Bandemare, smart people gathered for Game 7. Denver v. Utah. And what an ending. Gobert stays on his feet. Tough shot. Made it. Jokic giving Denver a two-point lead. Ten on the shot clock. Had it back-tapped. He lost it. The Nuggets come up with a defensive play. Murray. They missed the layup. Gobert got it. Mitchell hanging at the other end. Two seconds to go for the win. And it rims out. Denver hangs on. Oh, boy, that was tense. And what a goat Torrey Craig would have been. Blowing that layup with a few seconds to go to allow Conley to get off that potential winning shot that just circled out. Then everybody would have been cursing a guy named Craig. And I would have felt the fallout of that. But we live for another day. And now when Tori makes a three, I can stand up and yell, Craig! I like hoop. How about you? I also like golf. And Tommy Woodard's been one of the best golfers I've known for many decades. Gosh, we go way back. Listen to my interview with Tom Woodard about civil rights and growing up as an African-American golf professional in Denver, Colorado. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. And subscribe to The Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Don't quit on democracy. Be a part of this historic moment. Connect with us on social media at C. Silverman Show. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. Tommy Woodard. Hey, Craig. How are you doing? Fantastic. You ready to rock and roll and talk about the world? I am ready to go. I'm ready to go. It is your tea time. How many times have you called people up to the first tea? Oh, my gosh. You know, during my entire career, I've worked at high-volume public golf courses. We've always had starters. So I very seldom have had to call people to the first tee. However, working at high-volume public golf courses, I mean, they're packed, and today is no different. We're just totally swamped. I know it, and you've been doing this a long time. I've known you forever, or at least since you were in manual and I was at GW. But tell everybody the Tommy Woodard story. You are a Denver legend, but I think you were born elsewhere. Well, I was actually born in Midland, Texas, and my dad moved us here in 1966, and we moved two blocks from City Park Golf Course on the corner of 28th and Clayton. City Park had a junior golf program, but it also had caddies and shaggers. And a lot of uh, folks don't know what a shagger is, but in the 60s, a lot of golf courses did not have driving ranges. And so the golfers would bring their own shag bag, and then they would pay shaggers five cents a ball to stand out there and they would hit the balls at you and you would simply retrieve the balls, put them in a bag. And then when they hit all the balls, you would return. And sometimes they'd hit two and three bags full. So that's kind of how I made my money as a kid, shagging balls at city park and caddying at city park. But the neat thing 
was that they had a junior golf program and it was free. It was called the East Denver Junior Golf Program. It was part of the East Denver Men's Club. It was totally free. I never paid for junior golf from the age of 10 until 17 years old. Well, no wonder you got better than me. It cost me a buck 25. I mean, they had different days for Denver City courses for juniors, but my recollection is for a buck and a quarter, you could play Walsher on. Monday, Kennedy on Wednesday, but CP City Park was always a buck twenty-five, and it was my favorite course anyway. So, I think that's where we first met each other. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It was either there or I think I may have met you at Hill Middle School also. In the ninth grade, I went to Hill Middle School, mm-hmm. but I think I'm, Craig, I think I'm a couple of years older. Yes, than you, you are. I graduated from high school in 73. I graduated in 74. Okay, so one year. Right. We might have hooped it up on that playground at Hill Junior High. See, that's why you were never quite the golfer I became, because you also played basketball. And I was one-dimensional. All I played was golf. But you were sensational. You were a Denver phenom. Tell everybody about, of course, you won the Denver Prep League. Do you count that as great accomplishment? I think you should. Well, I will say this. The Denver Prep League wasn't the strongest league in the state. However, I did win the city golf championship a couple of times when I was at Manual. And I actually got a scholarship to the University of Colorado. It was a actually an Evans scholarship as opposed to a golf scholarship. Craig, when I grew up playing junior golf, junior golf was still pretty much segregated. And I grew up playing junior golf in segregated golf terms, believe it or not. So the junior golf director was trying to find a way for me to go to college. And so I was a caddy, applied for the Evans scholarship. My grades and the financial need was there. So I attended the University of Colorado on an Evans scholarship, and I was a walk-on on the golf team. And soon enough, you were dominating that golf team because at Colorado College, we still had a little golf team, and we got to play in tournaments with you guys, and you were one of their number one sticks. In fact, let's not be modest at all. You were in the CU Athletic Hall of Fame for your accomplishments as a golfer up there. Tell everybody what you did in college. Well, I made the golf team as a freshman, and and I played there for four years on the golf team. When I graduated from CU, I played more tournament rounds than any other golfer in the history of CU. And immediately you would say, well, Hell Irwin was at CU before you. Well, uh, people forget that Hell also played football. So I was inducted into the CU Athletic Hall of Fame. And this is a trivia question that I like to put out there. During the 100-year-plus history of that university, there are only four golfers in the CU Athletic Hall of Fame. And the, the trivia question is, who are they? And they all won major golf championships. And I'll put you to the test. Do you know who those other three golfers are? Okay. Hale Irwin, of course. That's the easy one. And then, but Steve Jones, did he go to see you? Yes, he went to see you. I'm going to give you that. Steve went to see you. And the third one is the tough one. Hmm. I'm thinking about the legendary coaches you had. Les Fowler, who I knew a little, and then Mark. He didn't mean a major championship. I know, but I'm thinking, okay, so. Tell me when you give. I'll give you the answer. All right, please. 
it was Dale Douglas. It is oh, kind of a trick that, question. The Fort Morgan kid. Exactly. Dale actually won a major as a senior. He won the PGA Senior Championship. So we they, they count that as a major. And so those are we're the only four golfers in the CU Athletic Hall of Fame. Now, what's your major? I said the other three have won a major. Oh, I, you know, you've I was, got the Denver Prep League title. That's not a major, but I will say this. I graduated from the tour qualifying school twice, so that's that, I think that's a pretty good accomplishment. I've played in two U.S. Opens, one PGA Championship. I'm in the Colorado Golf Hall of Fame, so I think that's a pretty good resume for a kid that went to manual. And you've taken a lot of money from me and other people because you can flat out play, and you are a great teaching pro and entrepreneur. Tell everybody about your current job. I'm currently director of golf for the Foothills Park and Recreation District. We have two golf facilities and four golf courses. Foothills Golf Course is the only golf course in the state that has an 18-hole regulation golf course, a nine-hole executive golf course, and a nine-hole par three. So no other facility has that three combinations. Then we have the Meadows Golf Course, which is an 18-hole regulation golf course. And I have been the director of golf for 14 years. And prior to that, I was the director of golf for the city of Denver. And I managed their eight golf courses for 10 years. You've seen the ups and downs. Did you ever expect that COVID would lead to the reemergence of golf? Well, I I never saw this coming. We were one of the last golf courses to close, and, and, and this was late March, early April, and there was a golf course up north. I think the name of it is Mountain Vista that was advertising from parking lot to first tee to parking lot, and I went up and I played the golf course, and literally that's what it was. I mean, you parked in the lot, you paid in advance, you walked to the first tee, you played golf, and you got in your car and left. And soon after that, golf courses started to reopen. And as you know, it's outdoors. Social distancing is just kind of normal for the sport. And we have had record numbers. Craig, at Foothills Golf Course, for the month of July, we played 23,000 rounds of golf. And for the month of August, we played 22,000 rounds. So that's 45,000 rounds in just two months. That's pretty busy. And how is the revenue? Because you don't get the restaurant, you don't get the 19th hole action. And can people really buy equipment and balls like they used to? People are afraid to go into the pro shop. Well, the pro shop is open, obviously, mask only. And yeah, the the, the merchandise sales, we limit the number of people that are allowed in the uh, pro shop at one time. But those numbers are also catching up. So we're having, we're one of those industries that is pandemic proof. I'll just lay, I'll say it like that. That's fantastic. And how are you handling the pins? Are you letting people remove it? I've been playing a lot in Meadow Hills and they keep the pins in. And with the new rules, you can putt with the pin in. Each course, Common Ground's doing it different. I haven't gotten out to the Meadows. How is the Foothills District handling that? Well, a few of the guidelines that we have in place, obviously we don't have any. We're trying to eliminate as many touch points as possible. We don't have any water on the golf course. There are no rakes in the bunkers. 
you have to ride a single cart unless you live in the same household. And if you ride with someone, you have to wear, both have to wear a face mask. We have a self-serve driving range operation, so there are no touch points there. We sanitize our carts when they're finished and before they go out. We sanitize the range balls. And I'm proud to say, Craig, as busy as we've been since April, we have not had one case where an employee has caught the COVID-19 virus. So that's that's a knock on wood. Good for you. And you should be proud of that. Speaking of pride, I had Shane Birch on last week. You know him better than I do. And you are in that elite golf world in Colorado. Tell us about Shane Birch, how long you've known him. And it's easy to say now, but didn't we all think he would do great on the Champions Tour if he only had a chance? Well, I certainly did. You know, Shane grew up in Evergreen, and he still plays the Meadows Golf Course three or four times a year. With uh, His dad passed away, and he plays with his dad's friends, and I think that's very nice of him. He actually has the course record at the Meadows. He shot 61. And when I had the chance to play with Shane, the one thing that I noticed is, and I played with a lot of very good golfers, I think that from 100 yards in, including, you know, the wedges and the putter, he's as good as I've played with. And and obviously, he's not super long, but he's long enough. He keeps his ball in play. And you add that combination. And I, you know, I have to admit, I knew that he would end up on the senior tour, and I knew that he would have a good career. But he won the, a senior qualifying school, and I think there's only eight spots. So he won Five. that. Five spots. Five. They reduced it three spots. Wow. And then to get out there and win, I mean, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Not only is he a, a, a very good golfer, he's a nicer guy. He's just a super. And he's got a lot of friends, you know, from City Park that we grew up with. And those two things don't always go together because when you are a super athlete, a fantastic golfer, there's a certain arrogance that can develop. Have you noticed that? Have you seen it in other pros? Ooh, I think I'm going to be politically correct and not mention any names, but yes, you see it all the time. They they don't hesitate. Even some golfers that can't play that well, they kind of tell you how good they are. But no, Shane is not like that at all. Who is the most memorable pro golfer that you had a relationship with? I know you hung out with Payne Stewart. What a great guy that was. What a shame that he died so young. Yeah, uh, Payne and I graduated from college. He went to SMU and we graduated the same year. And actually, I had a chance to play the Asian tour with Payne for one year. And and he won three times out of, I think it was 12 tournaments. Payton won three times over there. So kind of a, a trivia course and people don't know. He actually met his wife over on the Asian tour. Her brother, she's from Australia. I mean, obviously his ex-wife, but the family was from Australia and they were, the son was playing the Asian tour and the family traveled and that's where Payne met his wife. So good guy. To answer your question, I play. I got my tour card in, in 1981. I lost it. I didn't make enough money. Got it back again in 84, and I played again, and I lost it. But back in the early 80s, I would play all of my practice rounds with Calvin Pete. And if, if you remember back in the early 80s, they started keeping tour stats. And Calvin was the straightest driver on tour for like nine years in a row. So I 
absolutely loved playing my practice rounds with him. A quick story. Calvin said that he was not going to play one week. He was going to take off and spend a week with Jack Nicholas. So I couldn't wait for him to get back to find out, you know, what he and Jack talked about. And when he came back, he said one of the things that Jack shared with him was how important it was to maintain your posture through the golf swing and how important, not just a routine for hitting each golf shop, but as important was having a routine in life. So that's probably one of my best golf stories. What a great character, Calvin yes. Pete. And yes. he was one of the Jackie Robinsons of that sport. You are in that Hall of Fame as well. Don't be modest. Talk about, what is it, the American Black Golfers Association? I'm in the National Black Golfers Hall of Fame, and nice. then there's a, a, a Black American Golfers Hall of Fame. So I guess I made them both. You really broke ground here in Colorado, but talk about the people who came ahead of you in the world of golf, integrating the sport and making it the multicultural sport it is starting to be today. Well, I had a chance to meet and play with Charlie Sifford, and as you know, Charlie broke the color barrier in golf, and, and the PGA Tour was the last major sport to integrate. And they had a, up until I think it was 1962, they had a Caucasian only clause in their bylaws. And so I played some practice rounds with Charlie Sifford, and I'll never forget, I played a practice round with him at the LA Open at Riviera. And Charlie and I, we had dinner afterwards, and, and he asked me, how's it going out here? And I said, it was a little bit tough for me that I had a van that I was riding in from tournament to tournament, and a lot of the other players were flying from event to event. And and he looked at me, and he said to me, he goes, when I was your age and we were playing, there were four and five of us riding in a car, and our golf clubs were in the back of the station wagon. He says, there were certain hotels that we could not stay in. Mm. And and so he says, if one person made money in the event and the other didn't, we would kind of support the other person. He says, and at your age, I wasn't even allowed to play the PGA Tour. So that kind of put everything in perspective to me, for me. And my attitude changed overnight. That brings us to today, civil rights, relations between Black, white, brown. What's going on in this world, Tommy Woodard? Well, you know, I was fortunate enough to participate in a kind of a promotional piece that the uh, PGA of America put together during the PGA Championship. And during that piece, I, I said that I made the comment that I kind of live in two worlds and there kind of seems like there's two worlds out there. And after that piece aired, I had a, a few people, friends of mine, call me and kind of asked me to explain what I meant. And one of the stories I tell is that I went to the Western Slope about three weeks ago, and, and there were about 30 of us, and they're all black professionals. I mean, there were dentists, doctors, there's a couple of ex-NFL players. And after round, the round of golf, we'd sit down and have lunch and socialize, obviously social distancing. And to a person, we all had stories of, you know, and again, these are very professional black folks and just had stories of discrimination that they had experienced. And so when you're posed with the question, is there systemic racism? I and mean, if you ask that group, 
you would certainly say yes. And again, you know, I have my own stories if you want me to share a couple with you. Sure. And, you know, I talked about this earlier that when I grew up playing junior golf, I played in, in segregated golf tournaments. And someone that you are very familiar with is Colorado's first municipal judge, Judge James Flanagan. Sure. And he broke the color barrier for amateur golf in Colorado. He went to Cherry Hills to to play in the state amateur championship, and they didn't allow him to play because they said the club that he belonged to wasn't a member. So I have a story. This is a really good story. And again, everyone at the table had different stories. I will never forget my first week as a head pro at South Suburban Golf Course. A golfer had his club stolen, and I'm sitting in my office, and I could hear what's going on in the golf shop. He said, hey, somebody stole my clubs. Call the police. I can't believe it. And as you know, that happens all the time. You cannot leave your clubs around. So they said, okay, well, you know, we'll kind of look around and make sure someone mistakenly didn't take them. And so the, the golfer left. And in the meantime, I left the pro shop to go out and get in my car. And he walks up to me and he goes, open your trunk right now. And I go, and I kind of, you know, figured this was the same guy. And I, I kind of, I went on and opened my trunk to my car. And then I went back in my office and I just sat there because I was shocked. And the gentleman came back in the golf shop and he says, well, I couldn't find them. They said, well, you have to fill out an incident report. Why don't you go back in the office and, and, and the pro help head pro will give you the report. He walks in the office and he sees me. And so it's just, wow. just that's one of the stories I, uh, and I bet you handled that with some gentility and grace. Or you tell us, because you are a fierce competitor, but at the same time, you have been the host of so many events and you run organizations, sort of like John Hickamooper, where you always want to make the customers happy. I just am speculating in my mind, but you tell us, how did you deal with that guy as he filled out the form? Well, you you know, I thought it was uh, pretty amusing, to, to be honest with you. Now, and then there's a tremendous backstory to this, Craig, that I think is important. When I grew up in Midland, Texas, and I lived there until I was 10 years old, it's in West Texas. I think you can consider Texas in the South. You, you have to remember, and people forget this, that, you know, if you grew up in the South, segregation existed, and people don't remember it was actually the law that if you were a black person, you could not congregate with white people in public settings. And it's just hard to believe that that was a law. So I grew up in an area where I would say, well, why is why do we all live on this side of the track? And why do all the white folks live on the other side of the track? And why is that side of the railroad tracks, the, the homes and the schools and the nicer? And why do we have to go swim at this pool? And why do when we go to the movie theater downtown, we have to sit upstairs? And so you grow up there and you just, you don't like it, but you just say, well, gosh, why is it this way? So when that happens, I mean, I'd hate to say that you just get immune to it, but you know, you do what you do to try to change it, Craig. That's what you do. And then you get to Denver, Colorado, and we were all part of an experiment where we are going to desegregate the schools. There we were at Hill Junior High playing some hard hoop against each other every day on the playground. And just having lived through a tumultuous period in American history, civil rights battles, 
And I thought we were making progress, but civil rights has not lost its spark. Do you think things are getting better? You're out there, the average white and black person. Are we getting along better or worse? I'd like to think our kids are better than we are. Well, I think, Craig, my own personal opinion, this country's always been divided. I think it's just out front like it it's never been and recently. And that's kind of sad. I, again, I mentioned earlier that I kind of live in two worlds. You know, I work in the golf industry and, you know, there are not a lot of black Americans that play golf. There are some that play. And, you know, the courses that I operate are in, in Jefferson County. And so what I see is that the employees and the, the patrons out there, just life experiences. I mean, there's a segment out there that did you've not experienced what we have experienced with my friends that when we go to Greg Grand Junction. And it's just it's not a very pleasant time right now. I certainly don't enjoy what's going on in this country. I just think that hopefully during the next election that we can just somehow become united, find commonalities, and that's what I hope. Right. We are all in this together, especially during this pandemic. And you don't have to go there, but I will. My assessment of civil rights is, yes, it's kind of been hidden. And I think that the next generations are getting better and more tolerant of people of all kinds. But I think we have a deliberate divider in chief who wants to stir it up. And you can stir it up by throwing fuel on the fire, by fanning the flames. We've never had this in our American history. And thank God for the generals like Mattis, who said, this guy's policy is divide and conquer. He wants us fighting with each other like, oh, I don't know, Vlad Putin would like Americans to fight with each other over such things. So I think this is being deliberately drawn in, and you don't need to go there. And you are, in effect, a professional athlete that works for the government and the public. But I admire the guys in the NBA who have stood up and said, something is wrong here. They've never stopped sports in my lifetime, right? When Kennedy got killed, they still played the NFL. And to have sports stop twice in 2020 it shows you we're in a different time. How do you feel about those athletes standing up? And their message is a lot like yours. Let's vote in November. For God's sakes, let's vote. Well, I think you're 100% correct because as a person, each individually, you have to say to yourself, what can you do? And obviously, I have volunteered, and the key is getting folks out to vote. And what I volunteer to do is just kind of man phones, if you will, and call people and remind them to get out to vote. Never seen this country as divided as it is. And the thing that I don't like, Craig, is you have something like this pandemic that we're going through and something like this should not be politicized. And I just, it's really frustrating for me. I mentioned to you that uh, we haven't had any covert cases with employees at our golf course, but I'll give a lot of credit to the Foothills Park and Rec District. And, you know, you can say you like the governor or not, but if you look at states that uh, where they have masks that are mandatory, I just don't understand how that is politicized. I mean, it's a kind of proven fact that if you wear a mask, 
you're going to protect not only yourself, but other people. And I, I, the best answer I have is like, you know, your constitutional rights. Well, you know, you have to stop at a red light, you know, you know, you, you have to do it. You have to pay your taxes. I mean, you cannot do that, but but obviously there are consequences if you don't do it. So I just kind of hope that we have a, a, a new president that can bring people together as opposed to dividing us. There is a social contract. You can't go through red lights. And other than this president who needs to be removed, that guy drives his golf cart on his greens. I mean, have you ever in your life seen the arrogance of a person who would drive a golf cart onto the surface of a green? No. And, and you know, I've said this forever. And I think that it is a true fact, Craig. And just from my 30 years being in the golf industry, I tell everyone, you can tell everything you know about an individual if you play 18 holes with them. Do they play by the rules? Do they cheat? Do they lie about their score? And I think Rick Riley's book, that was kind of a... Oh my God. I had him on two weeks ago. Yeah. And I even brought up City Park, and he wants to play it. And that's how we have to talk about it. Tommy Woodard has the course record at City Park, 61. Just like Shane holds it at your new course, the Meadows. You will forever own that record. And let's talk about some of the competition for that record, because we both love talking about the late, great Harry King. Well, you you knew Harry King and, and Harry, you know, actually, when I was the director of golf for the city of Denver, we made a lot of changes to City Park. We we added some length to the golf course. We added 22 new tee boxes and we had a, a lake on six, if you remember. And of then course. Harry, Harry shot 62 and he always felt like that would should be the new course record for the new city park and my argument against that was this i said over the years for example they tiger proofed augusta national but they never wiped out any of the old records they never they they just kind of keep them in place or you can remember augusta when it had no rough and so i think i win that argument if augusta national harry was such a great guy he was a great guy harry was a lawyer a teacher, one of the greatest guys to talk to over 18 holes and just a superior golfer. And he loved the sport. He had a great attitude and he was terrific, gone too soon. But I don't think his heart could have put up with Donald Trump. Do you? No. And Harry, Harry was, he was just a super guy. He, you know, he, he quit the law profession to become a teacher at West high school. So he he was just he was free spirit. He was just a, a wonderful guy. But no, Harry did not do drama. He was just you remember the Harry that I remember. Right. And I'm glad we got to mention his 62. So will your 61 still stand now that they have a total redesign of City Park? Well, yeah, with the old City Park. When when I describe City Park to people, I say this. It reminds me of the analogy of uh, the picture frame is still there, but it's a new picture. So when I say the picture frame is still there, they kept most of the trees. So you're playing the golf course and you say, hey, this is the two trees that were on 10. Remember on the driving area, the top of the hill. Right. Or these were the trees that were left of 14. So 
the, the frame is there. The neighborhood is still there around it, but inside it's totally different golf course. They just, they scrape the course. Have you played it yet? No. Tell us about it. Well, one of the things that you remember about city park were how tough the greens were, but they all sloped from front to back. The new golf course, the greens are very difficult. However, they are different difficulty because they have a lot of undulation in them. And then the other thing about City Park, I used to say that if I went out there and I played par better on the par threes, that I would have a, a very good round of golf because three of them were over 200 yards. Well, the new City Park is the same. Actually, there's one par three from the back tees that's 245 yards uphill. Hmm. The, the, the other thing about the golf course is it's got water. There's water on like six holes out there. And the one thing that I really like about the new golf course is there are some golf holes out there that it's not good enough to be in the fairway, that you have to be on the left side of the fairway to have a, a, a shot at the pin. And then finally, there's only, it's a par 70. There's only two par fives and they both are classic risk-reward holes. So you can take a chance off the tee or the second shot, and, and if you hit a great shot, you're rewarded, but if not, you're going to pay the penalty. And then finally, I think what a lot of courses are doing, not only does it have five sets of tees, Craig, but they have these combo tees, and I don't know if you know what I'm, I'm talking about when I say combo tees. So combo tees, for example, the far back tees may be gold, and then the next tee right. up may be black. Well, they actually have a yardage on the scorecard where you can play nine of the mm. back tees and then nine of the tees up. So essentially there's eight sets of tees. And so it accommodates every skill level. That's beautiful. And I'm sure the vistas remain gorgeous of our beloved city of Denver, correct? What, what hole gives the best view now? Oh, my gosh, the clubhouse and the patio. So if you played City Park, if you remember the snack bar, the entrance, they built a new clubhouse across the street from the zoo entrance. So if, if you played the old City Park, when you got to the snack bar and you were on number eight tee box and you looked west, you saw the skyline and the mountain range. And and as you walked down number eight, you could look at the flat irons and where Tommy Woodard dominated to yep. see you golf. And now you get that view from sitting on the patio at the clubhouse. It, it's just a fantastic view. I'm excited to do it. And Shane said last week that he'd like to play City Park. So let's arrange a foursome. Wouldn't that be something? Well, you know, Shane likes to play for a couple of bucks. So uh, I don't mind if you're my partner because <laughs> well, you no, always no, no. come through. That's a different level. So he'd have to give me quite a few strokes. Uh, I have a friend of mine. He gives him four strokes aside, and and that's hard to believe that uh, that I could get four strokes aside. But we play about the same, my friend. And so that's a lot of strokes. And he and then Shane beats him too. So when Shane plays around here, playing these golf courses compared to the tour courses is a whole different story. I mean, he consistently shoots in the low 60s when he plays the courses around here. So that's what I'd say. If you think that you want to play on the tour, you better be shooting in the low 60s at the, on the courses around here. Well, Tommy Woodard, it's so great to catch up with you. And I feel encouraged because if City Park can be born again and if you are retiring that title, and I don't blame you for doing that, I think I'm the all-time CC single-season scoring leader in basketball, 
with my measly average, just a little over 20. You know why? Even though about 15 guys have broken the record, because they what? have three-pointers. We didn't even have three-pointers oh, back in the day. Oh, I see. You put an asterisk next to that. Yes. Okay. Okay. That, I like that. I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense. A three-pointer made all the difference in the world. Of course. Of course. It's a different sport. Did the Nuggets have any chance against the Clippers? That was pretty discouraging, game one. I've heard the term snowball's chance in hell. I don't think so. I, I really don't. I mean, I, I you know, I, God, Clippers and the Lakers are coming out, are going to play for the Western uh, Conference Championship. If Kawhi has to leave the bubble for some reason, maybe. But yeah. Kawhi is special, and so is LeBron. Is LeBron the king of sports right now? Well, is he the best player in the NBA? Ooh, there's a kid that plays for Dallas that's also pretty good. But I think overall, with the mentality of wanting to win and playing both ends of the court, I'm still going to go with LeBron. And he speaks out. I think they call him King LeBron. And I admire the guy. I think he's handled the public life really well, and he's given a lot back to the community, just like you. I mean... He cares about America and the plight of American citizens. Yes, he does. He really does. He is probably, I can't remember another athlete, and I'd have to go all the way back to Muhammad Ali. I think that LeBron is, you know, when you add the combination of just a superstar category and outspoken, I mean, you put them two, I mean, they stand alone. And what is that called? The term they use, the GOAT? I Greatest think those of all two, time. Yep, those two are in a category by their own. And and I do admire him. I really do. He doesn't care anything about his brand, impacting his brand. And, and, and be honest with you, the NBA is probably the number one league out there that is really fighting for equality. And, and you have coaches like Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr who are just out front. And, and so that's admirable. And when you hear people say, I don't like the NBA, I don't watch it. I'm never going to watch it again. Isn't that like, okay, I understand who you are now. Well, to be honest with you, when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling, I had uh, one of our customers say, hey, you all stop carrying Nike stuff. And I said, well, I don't think we're going to do that. And I said, as a matter of fact, I think Nike knows what they're doing because he, they did an ad with Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. in the ad. And, and I said that those people that buy the product, their consumers, they are – in line and step with what Colin is talking about and what he's kneeling for. And sure enough, their their sales increased. So I think Nike knew what they were doing. Right. And for the people who think the pandemic may not be real and all that kind of hoax bull crap, look at the PGA Tour. They shut it down and they did it along with other sports leagues, even before the government got involved. I think it's real. It's scary for all of us, but I'm glad the golf is pandemic-proof because it keeps a lot of us from going nuts. You can get on the golf course, get away from the news, give your final pitch for golf and why people should come to the foothills or do you even need to do that anymore, given how crowded you are? Well, you better 
we'd make tee times one week in advance, some courses 10 days in advance, some 14 days in advance. Whatever that day is, you better call on that day. And I'm, I'm literally, Craig, we are just kind of booked from sunup to sundown the last four months. I mean, it's taken a toll on staff. However, like I told our executive director, I said, I'm not complaining because, you know, being in the industry so long, it gets monotonous and now kind of a change of pace to be so busy. I actually love the fact that the game that you and I love and have played forever is just at the forefront right now being pandemic proof. I, I think that's fantastic. What a great game. You are fantastic. You've been a gift to golf and you're a great asset to the community. Thanks for talking about these subjects with us, Tommy Woodard. And I hope to see you soon, either out at your place, the Meadows, or let's do try to play at City Park. Okay, I will work on getting us a tea time and we'll play City Park. Thank you, Tommy. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Bye. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what, what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell them Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to The Greg Silverman Show. Welcome. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hey, Lyle, it's Craig. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. How are you? Wonderful. Have you ever wanted to enter an exclusive club where prominent lawyers go to relax, tell war stories, and kick around current events? I thought maybe we would discuss Donald Trump and a recent editorial you wrote. Love to. Lyle, tell everybody about yourself. Sure. So I'm a lawyer here in Denver, 50 years old. I've lived about half of my life in Colorado. I grew up the son of a naval officer, so we bounced up and down the East Coast quite a bit as I was growing up. But I moved to Colorado in my junior year of high school and finished up high school here in Colorado. Went back East for undergrad and then came back to Colorado for grad school and law school and have been here ever since. 
not just here ever since. You are with one of the top law firms in America, Sherman and Howard. Tell everybody about the rich tradition of that 17th Street firm. Well, Sherman and Howard uh, lays claim to being the oldest law firm in Denver. We've been around for 132 years now and have been a full-service Denver-based regional firm for, for that entire period, ranging from litigation to real estate to corporate to intellectual property to high-end estate planning. So it's a full-service firm that's been around for a long time. When I look up your picture, Lyle Wallace, and I did, at your Sherman and Howard website, tell everybody what kind of tie you are wearing. Maybe it's because I'm an East Coast kid originally, but I am a bow tie wearer. I am one of several, actually, at Sherman and Howard, which is there aren't many of us here in Denver at all. So happily a, a bow tie wearer, although in the COVID era, I am not wearing a tie at all anymore. Nobody is. But back in the day, did you tie your own bow tie every day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've worn bow ties, oh, since middle school, probably. So I I learned to tie it early on. And then once you wear it every day, you you get pretty good at it. And so I'm the designated bow tie tire at every black tie event for all of my friends. So it's a good skill to have. How long do you think it would take you to teach me how to tie a bow tie on myself? I am sure you have a lot of dexterity, so not too long. All of my friends that try to tie a bow tie use some YouTube video, and that's pretty difficult, but having somebody tie it for you or show you how to tie it makes it a lot easier. How long does it take you to do it in the morning? Oh, 10 seconds. 10 seconds? Wow. Yeah, it's an acquired skill. (laughs) How many people have you taught to do it? Many over the years, although when you tie it for, you know, when you tie it for a black tie event twice a year and don't do it on a consistent basis, I have to <laughs> reteach those people over and over again. Because, you know, if you're not doing it consistently, you'll, you'll forget how. Well, the reason I bring up bow ties is because I'm going to take a guess that you probably like that character, Alex Keaton, right? Michael J. Fox. I think he wore a bow tie. And I'm further going to guess that you became a Republican. (laughs) I have always been a Republican from the time that I was eligible to vote for for my first in my first presidential election in 1988. I registered as Republican when I turned 18 in 1987, which is right around the time of Family Tide and Keaton. So I definitely know who you're talking about and have been a Republican ever since. I actually voted it for a Republican in every presidential election ever since. I actually changed my registration from Republican to independent or unaffiliated in 2006 because of some dissatisfaction with the Republican Party and what they were doing around spending and the Iraq war, but continued to vote Republican, largely Republican, well, Republican in every presidential election and Republican in most down-ballot races. It just seems to me, and I've never worked at Sherman and Howard or a law firm quite like that, but it would seem to me that being a Republican and wearing bow ties might be attractive if I'm an entrepreneur or a businessman. I like these kinds of lawyers. So did your Republicanism help with your law practice? I, I wouldn't say that because, you know, not many 
people may surmise, clients, prospective clients might surmise that you're wearing a bow tie for God's sakes. (laughs) But well, I will have to tell you that I have a number of clients that are in what I'll call blue collar industries. So instruction companies and HVAC companies that tell me to lose the tie if I'm ever going to come see them. So my, my client base is diverse and I'm sure their political beliefs are diverse. And so I don't know that being a Republican or wearing a bow tie necessarily affect my ability to attract clients, but it's maybe. Can I tell you what attracted me to you is that my concept is that you put yourself somewhat at risk. You are a prominent Republican. You also have a nice law practice at a well-established law firm. So why get involved now? Why write an editorial saying, I'm a Republican, but no way am I going to vote for Donald Trump. In fact, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Why take that risk? Yeah, I, I have to say that I've never been overtly political. And so this was a little bit out of character for me. You know, I have worked on a couple of political campaigns. I worked for John McCain in 2000 when he was running for the Republican nomination and then 2008 when he was running for president, but have otherwise not been terribly politically active. And so to step out of my comfort zone and participate in that op-ed really I think it's due to the fact that I think I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but I think this is the most important election of my lifetime. And I didn't think it was enough to simply and quietly either vote for Joe Biden or vote against Trump. I think there is a I don't know how big the segment segment of the electorate is, but I think there is a segment of the electorate that can be convinced that character really matters. And so this is an election where you might vote against your own policy preferences to put somebody in office that will return some of the norms to governance at the highest level and get away from kind of this chaotic system of governments that we have now. Looking at your practice, Lyle Wallace, I assume that you work with a lot of business men, businesses, and other lawyers, etc. And part of your job is to size people up, looking at the facts, the data, the law. When you are counseling a client about what to do with another party on the other side, as you evaluate them, sometimes you say, hey, I think it's a good fit. There's a reputable group and it's going to work out fine. But other times you see things as a lawyer that make you counsel your client, stay away. Do you think you have some expertise looking at Donald Trump and saying, boy, I would not want to do business with this guy because he's never going to be fair to us? Well, I think Donald Trump's record in New York is and elsewhere is well known. You're right that, you know, they're part of my role as a lawyer and an advisor and counselor is to determine whether the opposing side is trustworthy. Ultimately, I'm an advisor to my clients, which are business owners and entrepreneurs. And so I rely on them to ultimately make the decisions about business ventures that they get into. But I will say almost unequivocally that it's 
that is the character and trustworthiness matters in business relationships. And so I don't know that I'm any more qualified than anybody else to to determine whether an opposing side is trustworthy or not. But, you know, that's certainly something that I, I look at in, you know, my normal daily activities. Right. Maybe you are not an expert witness. Maybe I'm not either. But I think I could get Marianne Trump very qualified because on top of her being paid by the government to be a lawyer, a prosecutor, size people up, then she became a federal judge for decades. And her whole job is to size people up. And she sized up her little brother, Donald. And I think she's an expert because she knows the guy and seen him from the moment he came into this world. And she's not impressed and says he's a liar, not trustworthy. And she says it in all candor to her niece. And we can debate the propriety of that. But the level of corruption, it's offensive, isn't it, Lyle? It's staggering what I'm seeing Donald Trump do for his personal benefit. Every time he goes golfing, he makes tens of thousands of dollars charging the Secret Service for this, of course, the government, which means you and me. Am I wrong to be offended? Do you see the corruption? I do. I mean, when I when I say the character matters, I'm primarily focused on what I see as a level of corruption that we have never seen from a president before and a lack of trustworthiness just in terms of his integrity and honesty. And, you know, certainly we've had presidents who have lied to the American public directly, who always spin their version of the truth. But Donald Trump takes it to an entirely new level that I don't think we've ever seen before, certainly that I have never seen before in my lifetime. And it's it's naked. I mean, it's, you know, he, he doesn't make any great efforts to try and hide his corruption, which is what's particularly galling and why I'm not only, you know, voting against Trump and voting for Joe Biden, but considering voting a straight Democrat ticket this year because of what I see as Republican enabling and just the complete lack of pushback or oversight from Republicans who should be more concerned than even Democrats about what Donald Trump is doing. I agree with you. They are enabling. At a certain point, aren't they complicit? Think about it. Right now, this level of corruption cannot be stopped by you or me, but it could be by Cory Gardner. If he would stand up and say something, that would help, right? I think it would. I, you know, I, I think it would take, I don't think a single Republican speaking out against Trump is sufficient. I mean, you look at what Mitt Romney did during impeachment. You've had isolated rebukes from Susan Collins or from Lindsey Graham or other Republicans. So what's the problem with your party? What, what, what is the problem? And doesn't it make you reevaluate ever being a Republican? Because my God, if you can't get two or three of them together, if Mitt Romney cannot rally Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, and Ben Sass, it's staggering to me that the Republican Party would fold this easily to Donald Trump. I'm sure you've thought about that, Lyle. What do you think? And what are you going to do about it? You said you're going to vote straight Democrat. Can you still have any pride in being a Republican? 
Certainly not as as the Republican Party is constituted now. I mean, I think they they really have gone against all of the principles and ideologies that made me a Republican in the first place. So gotten away from fiscal conservatism. It, It has largely become a white, working class, populist, nationalist, grievance based party in its in its current form. And it has utterly capitulated to what Donald Trump wants. I mean, you saw this in the Republican National Convention platform where they basically said, we're really not going to come up with a new platform. We're going to rely on what our 2016 platform was. And otherwise, we're just going to enthusiastically support Donald Trump's positions. I mean, to me, that's a cult of personality. That's not a not a political party. And so in my estimation, you're seeing the result of that, which is the Republican Party is shrinking and it's becoming more white, more working class, more male, and more populist and nationalist in in nature and less ideological. That's the second time you've used the words white and nationalist. And I'm worried about white supremacy and the attraction to Donald Trump and Donald Trump not pushing them away. Do you worry about it? Have you ever seen anything like it in your lifetime? No, I have never seen anything like it. I, you know, it's it's not only that Donald Trump isn't repudiating the philosophy; in some ways, he's actually embracing it. And so he's, you know, voice to David Duke and other white nationalists and white supremacist organizations that seem to think that because he hasn't directly repudiated them, that he supports them. And if it's not direct support, it's certainly by not repudiating their philosophy, you know, he he gives voice to their concerns. He feeds into grievance politics. He is divisive in his rhetoric, obviously. Deliberately so. He's deliberately divisive. I like Jim Mattis. He was probably my favorite Trump cabinet appointee. And when he left, he said, this guy believes in divide and conquer. And he cited the Nazis. He said that's what they believed in. That came from mad dog Jim Mattis. How dangerous do you think this situation is? Well, so Mattis, I mean, he said that this is the first president in his lifetime that his his purposefully divided people as a, as a political philosophy and as a political tool, I think that's dangerous because one of the things you have to look at is, let's say Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win in November. The philosophy and the grievance and the white nationalism isn't going to go away overnight. There's still a significant portion of our population and electorate that hold those beliefs and the populism and the nationalism isn't going to go away overnight. So, yeah, I think by fomenting that, that's dangerous for the country. Absolutely. The one thing we have in common is we both wear ties a lot. I don't wear bow ties. God, I would need your help. (laughs) But I think there's a special obligation on the part of lawyers. A lot of people love the Constitution. It's a requirement at law school. And we take an oath on the Constitution ourselves. I'm worried about the Constitution. I'm worried about the rule of law under Donald Trump. Bill Barr is like Roy Cohn. It's dangerous. It's (laughs) terrible. If it goes on another four years, I think this country 
is in peril. Rule of law, Lyle, are you concerned? I am concerned about the rule of law from a couple of different perspectives. So you look at, I have to say that I was a little naive when Trump was elected. I thought that the damage that he could do would be limited by our constitutional system and the separation of powers. And what he has proven is that he can, there is no norm that he can't break. There is really, to this point, no law that he can't break and not suffer consequences if he has a sufficient number of Republican senators who won't vote to impeach him or remove him from office. And so that that's really dangerous in my mind. There was a failure of imagination on my part with respect to what he was capable of and what he would do in office. And I just think you look at just the activities of both he and Bill Barr and the damage that they've done to our Justice Department with respect to people's respect for and belief in our Justice Department as a tool to support the rule of law. You look at all of the inspectors general that he's had removed. You look at removing Jeff Berman as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, all with an eye towards helping his friends and punishing his enemies. And I think that's extraordinarily dangerous. And I think that his ability to evade oversight by what I consider obstruction of justice and not submitting to congressional oversight has a really dangerous effect on our on our system of government. It is so brazen. Could you believe the way he used the White House for the RNC? And then this week, telling the people of North Carolina to vote twice? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's outrageous. And again, where is Cory Gardner? Or where are countless other prominent Republicans who have served this state well in the past? Bill Owens, Bob Beaupre, Hank Brown. I mean, these guys have jobs, and especially, I think, Owens and Brown, they work for big law firms like yours. What's going on in places like that? Are other lawyers speaking out the way you are, or are they just going with the flow? I think that, at least in my anecdotally in my experience, I don't see a lot of lawyers speaking out. I, I know that there are a lot of lawyers who may be Republican or may have been Republican in the past or consider themselves conservatives or libertarians that privately think what Trump is doing, what he stands for is intolerable, but I don't hear them speaking out very much. And they may vote against him, but you know, I, I get the sense that there's a lot of Republicans and former Republicans who tend to lean right that don't like Donald Trump's tone. They don't like his tweeting. They don't like his, don't particularly like his character. But so long as he supports things that they might believe in, they're inclined to vote for him as opposed to voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who they might view as they might buy into kind of the socialist rhetoric or... I mean, isn't um, that ridiculous? It's not like Bernie Sanders won. Joe Biden, who is a Delaware moderate, won. And you announced it in the Denver Post, and it attracted me to you. I'm a Republican, but I'm voting for Joe Biden. Don't I size it up right? Biden is not a risk to America. Not in my view. I mean, I and I think that's why you see a lot of Trump's attacks against Biden and Harris 
as being controlled by the left or taking America in a socialist direction. You see those fail. It doesn't comport with Joe Biden's 47-year history in government, doesn't fit with his personality. And so I think people see through that. But one of the risks to our country is that I think there is a large portion of the electorate, and this goes across party lines, but people tend to get their views from sources that tend to reinforce their own beliefs. And so if you are a Republican and you tend to watch Fox News and you read Breitbart and you get your news from OAN, it reinforces the view that Biden is more socialist or more left than he actually is, that he supports defunding the police, which is nonsense, that he, you know, would be bad for the military, that, you know, so you just go down the list and there's a number of arguments against Biden that get reinforced depending on where you get your news. Well, it seems to me that Republicans who wear bow ties might be a little smarter than other Republicans because George Will, like you, wearing a bow tie said, I'm voting for Biden. We all know you don't like Trump, but to go the further step of voting for Biden and to put it down in print as Will has and you are, I admire that. I really appreciate your time. But lastly, what can we do about it? I feel compelled to do everything I can in the run up to this election. And that's part of the reason for this podcast. What else do you plan to do? What organizations do you like? Well, so there are a couple of organizations that involve people like me. So there's Republican Voters Against Trump, and there's the Lincoln Project, which is Republicans and former Republicans who can't tolerate Trump and will be voting against Trump and for Biden in the election. And so supporting, I I think both of those organizations have produced some of the best political ads that I have seen. So I'm supporting both of those organizations. And, you know, I will be more politically active in this election than I have been in the past. It's the first time I've actually had a sign for a candidate in my yard ever. And so I've got a Biden-Harris sign. And, you know, I am trying to speak out to affect that small portion of the electorate that can be convinced that character really matters. Character matters maybe more so than policy in this election And we need to return decency and normalcy to the White House. And then we can get back to arguing policy. You know, I I will become part of the loyal opposition once Biden and Harris are in office and, you know, promote my policy positions. But none of that matters if we have a corrupt and untrustworthy person in the White House. Well said. Absolutely beautiful. I really appreciate you spending time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I know how much an hour at Sherman and Howard is worth, so you better get back to work. I'll send you a bill. No, don't do that. Anyway, I hope you had a good time. (laughs) I did. Thanks very much, Thanks for standing up. Really appreciate it. Michael Bailey, give us your COVID update. How goes the practice of law, and how does it affect your practice? So practice of law is doing okay. It's been interesting to do virtual meetings. I've gotten a quick education in Zoom and how to do video conferencing. But now I'm able to do that and you know, meeting with people and getting them taken care of and all that good stuff. 
I hope your kids are okay, but a lot of people have different living circumstances now, and sadly, people are thinking about their own mortality. If somebody wants to talk over end-of-life legal issues like my wife Trish and I did, how do they get a hold of you? They can call me at 720-394-6887. That's 720-394-6887. Or they can send me an email at michaelbaileylaw at yahoo.com. Or they can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there's a button to make a schedule an appointment there. That's a great way to do it. Although I have always found you accessible. When you call the Michael Bailey Law Firm, you will speak with a real lawyer. And Michael will come to you or you can meet in a park. You can meet at a restaurant, although... A lot of restaurants are not open right now. But the point is, Michael can meet with you any way you want to meet with him. I recommend him. So does my wife, Trish. Michael Bailey, the end-of-life lawyer for you. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. The 2020 presidential elections right around the corner now more than ever. We have to make our voices heard. No matter what our voices sound like, we need to shout it out. Be a part of this historic moment. Join the conversation. Please follow The Craig Silverman Show on social media at C. Silverman Show. And please subscribe to The Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. Another great show in the books. I hope you enjoyed it. You can linger on it all Labor Day weekend. These times are consequential. I really appreciate you listening. Thank you to my guest, Tommy Woodard. What a great guy. Keeping his wits about him through all those years in the golf industry. Lyle Wallace, I admire you. Guys who take a risk to speak the truth. And William Sultan, my friend in Wisconsin, great to hear from you. Thank you, Troubadour Dave Gunders, for your great song, Hole in the Head. See you next week for the September 12th edition of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.